The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 57, What Engineers Do, June 12th, 2014. So Brian, what part of your job is most unrelated to the things you learned in school? I think the engineering part. <laughs> um, you, you did go to engineering school, did you not? Oh, yes. Faked his way through anyways. <laughs> I would say everything from product life cycle, product development, uh, planning. You know, you do a few projects. And it, it's good that colleges are emphasizing project work more and more. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's a lot that can really prepare you, you know, you know, shooting at paper targets is not the same as shooting at another tank. So they let you shoot at paper targets in school? Uh, sometimes. You got to learn <laughs> physics 101 one way. Yes. Yes. Put the Tektronix scope at the end of the uh, downrange. <laughs> I'll donate my scope at work. I need a new one anyways. And if it conveniently broke, <laughs> that would work. <laughs> no, I... I, I Actually, what I what I often find myself saying to new graduates is, uh, you know, you come out of school thinking you can solve any problem, and then you you basically learn that you learn how to learn how to solve problems, and now you have to actually learn how to solve problems. Right. An engineering degree is a learner's permit. That's stolen from somebody, I believe. It's a pretty good one. I think it's it's pretty widely accepted that you come out of school with your degree and then you basically go back to school in the uh, in the workforce. You you uh, they attach you to some more senior engineer and uh, you get led around by the ear for a couple of years and you kind of figure out what's what. And uh, at that point, they feel safe letting you loose. Yeah, Todd was talking a little about that last week with uh, the whole mentoring program at Winier Tech. We touched mm-hmm. on it. it. Seems to be pretty common in a lot of industries. Well, and I'll even throw out there in civil, it's pretty well forced upon you with the licensing requirements. Mm -hmm. Hey, is there pranking in civil engineering? I mean, do they like give you wedgies off the bridge or something? Um, you know, not that if you can't talk about if it's a secret, uh, you know, the order of the civil engineers. (laughs) We've we've replaced his steel gusset plates with aluminum. Let's see if you know. Well, I did tell you about the goldfish in the pond, the the the, the goldfish right. shaped island in the yes, yes. pond. Yeah, that's a. Is this a metaphor? No, no, no. This is from a few episodes ago. Yeah. Okay. You gotta yeah. pay attention, man. Can't uh, can't be drunk all the time. Th- that's about as uh, creative <laughs> as as we get, from what I can remember, or at least that I know of. You should you should make the streets spell out your initials or something. Hmm. Bon- bonus points if it's cursive. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an awesome highway to drive. <laughs> As a motorcyclist, I will tell you, please do that. Hmm, I'll, I'll see what I can come up with. All right. It's just a matter of erasing some pencil lines, right? That's about as sophisticated as those plans get. Um, yeah, it, it's very much like uh, making an iPhone is uh, taking a couple of, of dip package chips and kind of soldering them together, right? Yes. Basically. Actually, this, that is true. I made about three iPhones today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All in a day's work. Yeah, just like phone blocks. 
obviously engineering is a little bit more than uh, what we learn in school. You know, we get sent off and, and we learn how to do equations. We do calculus. We do uh, analysis. And uh, we get done and think we know how to do real-world engineering work. And then we get thrown into engineering work and we discover it's something different. So today we wanted to talk about what engineers really do, give some thoughts as to the, the activities that engineers undertake and how we learn about those activities and what, what uh, steps we might take to do those activities better. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode is what engineers really do. We drink beer. Now, bef- well, yeah, before we get into the, the meat of tonight's discussion, it, it turned out each of us had a beer handy uh, for these this evening's episode and thought since we rarely go through an episode without mentioning the beer word at some point, uh, that would give a short description of what it is with it we were consuming this evening. Uh, so if we go alphabetically, that would put, uh, Adam, that would put you first. What do you got this evening? Well, I have a uh, homemade uh, Flanders Red Ale from, well, bottled in 2011, which is, you know, kind of an odd beer, but uh, a little bit sour, but, yeah, nice, good drinking beer. Awesome. And what made you decide to brew this particular uh, style of beer? I picked it out of the book. Oh, I, I'm assuming <laughs> this was something you made yourself. Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, I opened up the book and went to sour because I really like sour beers. And, oh, this one seems good. I've got most of those ingredients. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's how we often make dinner here at the Shelton household. Is there a major label sour beer? Because I've had a few good ones, but I've also had some really bad ones. Amagang Zur. Oh, yeah. Brewed in Cooperstown, New York. Brewery Amagang. They have a, a real good sour called Zur. Yeah, um, I, I think that the, there are a lot of really good sour beers, not a lot that are easy to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, Cantillon is kind of the gold standard, but I have never seen a bottle in person. Does that? I take it that means it's fairly rare? Yeah. Part of the problem is the bo- the beer is brewed... Between, well, depending on the beer, between one and several years before it's bottled. And they can only brew it for a short period of time. And uh, so it's a very limited production. Are they fermented in open casks? Uh, the initial inoculation is done in uh, what's called a cool ship. And uh, hoisted up on the roof. It's actually in the attic. Yep. All that. <laughs> and they open up the windows and let all the, the air. Um, blow on in and uh, yeah, you let all that wild natural yeast that's been in the area for so long uh, get in there and work its magic. Start fermenting the sugars and the wheat or the mash. And so, uh, so alphabetically, then Brian, you're next. What have you got this evening? Oh, a delicious Jose Cuervo. Ooh, I, just kidding. No, I'm just drinking Heineken. <laughs> oh man, I thought you were gonna be like a Kenny Chesney song or something. No. No. Uh, when it's the hard stuff, it's uh, Jameson or uh, or uh, Glenn Livett. But uh, got expensive taste there. Nah. Well, you're sipping it, you know. True. So, oh, it's just Heineken. It's a nice. Uh, I know it's a controversial, cheap beer, but uh, it's um, it's a nice, it's a nice summer beer. Sometimes that's all you need. Very good. And so, uh, Carmen, you're next. What have you got this evening? 
Uh, I am drinking some uh, Dreamweaver Wheat by Trogues Brewing. It's a Hefeweizen, and I got some this weekend when my parents brought down a sampler when they came in town. And it's delicious. Very nice. Yeah. And this one actually is fermented in uh, open-top containers in Hershey, Pennsylvania. But it's not done up on the roof like they do it over in uh, Belgium. You know, traditionally, this is done in a lab setting. Right. But still open-top. Jeff, what about you? I am drinking an Indianapolis beer. Uh, there's a brewery here in town, a town called Flat 12 Brewery. And they make a... Uh, a porter called Pogues Run Porter, uh, labeled as a robust dark ale. And uh, I like dark ales. I like porters. I like stouts. So I'm enjoying this one this evening. Oh, I had one you would have loved yesterday then. It, uh, it's from a relatively new brewery in uh, the Raleigh area. It's about a half hour or so outside of the city. Uh, it's called Double Barley. Mm-hmm. And I had their um, vanilla porter yesterday. Oh, it was fantastic. It was like drinking a milkshake almost. <laughs> A little, little bit of coffee, a little bit of vanilla, like real, like the smoothest beer I've had in a long time. I can't recommend it enough. Wow. Yeah. So if anybody from there, they're listening, I'll take a check. <laughs> but yeah, double barley if you're passing through. Uh, anybody on a road trip this summer, they're right where I-40 meets 95 pretty much. I, I might have to stop there. Yeah. They now have food, I found out. So even better. Jeff, is flat 12 an engine reference? It is. Uh, as you may be aware, the uh, the Indianapolis area has a long history with motor racing. And in fact, it this, does. It does. The Indianapolis 500. Is that like a NASCAR event of some kind? It, it, no, it is not a NASCAR <laughs> event. It uh, has open wheel racing, as racing should be, <laughs> and has been running since uh, 1911 was the first race. Uh, there are a few, <laughs> They took a few years off for the World Wars. At least World War II, I don't know about World War I. And so uh, this past year, or the past weekend, two weekends ago, I guess now, it was the 97th running of the Indianapolis 500. So we're 97th or 98th. We're coming up quickly on the, on the 100th running. So That's when they add an extra 100 laps. <laughs> now, that would be interesting. Are there still bricks on the track? There, There is a yard of bricks at the start-finish line. From front to back, it's a yard and goes the width of the track. But underneath... I think it's still there. At one time, it's called the Brickyard because they bricked the entire place, and they eventually asphalted over all the bricks, and I believe that they've asphalted several times. They've updated the track, um, so I think it's still buried underneath all the asphalt or or the original bricks. And i got to ask the uh, civil engineer, and I know this is way off topic, but Hmm. sounds cool. Um, For a car going that fast, does it present any sort of challenges in terms of surface to like i could just imagine a car going 220 miles an hour trying to make turns like literally tearing the asphalt um well i mean i suppose you might want to look at things like the heat and even um even trucks can shove asphalt just driving on normal pavement really um i wouldn't be so much yeah it's usually when there's a problem that the the binders weren't very good but sometimes at intersections, you'll actually see the asphalt's been shoved a little bit from the braking. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bad thing when it happens. But um, I would think that as long as you use the right binders, you'd be fine. And with a, a track and something like a racetrack, you wouldn't have to 
worry so much about the temperature range. You'd have to worry more about the high end than the low end, so it'd be easier to pick a good binder because um, you're not running traffic on it in the middle of winter. That's that's good to know. Yeah, the the uh, the drivers pull a lot of G's going through the corners. I can't remember the exact number, but it's you know it's like three or four G's going through the corners. Mm-hmm. They talk about going into turn one is basically going in and making a left turn in a closet. <laughs> um, so it's, the, I'm sure there's a lot of side force on the asphalt as they go around the turns, but but obviously they've designed it so that the the asphalt tire combination works just fine. Well, and a lot of that they solve with um, actually banking, or um, what in a road would be called super elevation. By by turning the road, you only get so much side friction out of the asphalt. So if you turn the road, you you use gravity to provide your side force. Aha! Uh-huh. Physics. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone hasn't caught on now, this is also what engineers do: is we get sidetracked very easily. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's why that's why they designate a project manager to uh, run the meetings. Right, often has the worst sense of humor. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about that. Sometimes the project managers go off too. Right. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So let's see if we can get this thing uh, back on the rails. So we can start with what engineers really do, according to the so-called experts. You know, those people that get quoted in the uh, in the textbooks. So we can go to uh, Henry Gordon Stott, who in 1907 said, Engineering is the art of organizing and directing men and of controlling the forces and materials of nature for the benefit of the human race. Another grand-sounding quote about engineers is, The ideal engineer is a composite. He is not a scientist. He is not a mathematician. He is not a sociologist or a writer. But he may use the knowledge and techniques of any or all of these disciplines in solving engineering problems. And that's from N.W. N.W. Doherty, uh, who was a professor of civil engineering at U- the University of Tennessee. We can go to uh, uh, Gordon Stanley Brown, who is a professor of electrical engineering at MIT. And uh, he said, engineering is not merely knowing and being knowledgeable, like walking encyclopedia. Engineering is not merely analysis. Engineering is not merely the possession of the capacity to get elegant solutions to non-existent engineering problems. Engineering is practicing the art of the organized forcing of technological change. Engineers operate at the interface between science and society. So again, we get a a, uh, sort of a a noble view of the engineering profession, uh, its contribution to to mankind as a whole. And so if we go to perhaps the most succinct uh, quote from a, a person I consider an expert, this was my father's advice to me. He also was a mechanical engineer. And I can't tell you how many times I heard from him, engineering is the art of compromise. And so I've always tried to keep that in mind. It is, it is quite the balancing act. <laughs> <laughs> you often get shoved from lots of directions and have to find uh, find some middle ground that will not necessarily make everybody happy, but at least uh, make everybody start stop uh, fighting for a while. Yeah. Usually usually it's not quite the middle. It's a 60-40 or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh. Right. And so uh, there's one more quote there from uh, Brian. What is what is that quote? Uh, I'm trying to find a source for it, and I do not know the gentleman nor the context, Theodore von Karman. Uh, Karman, I believe your namesake. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, scientists study the world as it is. Engineers create the world that has never been. Wow. From the American Society of Engineering Education. 
Cool. Well, it seems obvious that uh, all these all these ex- so-called experts are indicating there's something to engineering beyond uh, running equations, despite the fact that uh, in school we're made to do lots of equations and to solve lots of problems that have an exact answer, that maybe that's not the whole of what engineers do out in the workplace. And so uh, we thought this evening we could talk a little bit about what engineers do do in the workplace. So, Brian, you want to start off and, and uh, give us a, one thing that engineers do in, as part of their jobs? So an engineer uh, is a real-world problem solver. They will break problems into solvable pieces. Uh, the art of engineering is knowing how big the pieces can be. Uh, the engineer must understand the tools, materials, processes that are practical Practical, sorry, for a given time, location, organization, situation, and political environment. So the art of breaking problems, big problems down into smaller problems, that's, that is definitely something we learn in engineering school, is it not? Uh, I'd say yes and no. I think you should have learned it. I don't think you get really good at it. It's difficult to give even a graduate student a problem that requires a significant amount of decomposition. I don't know. And and maybe that's my own perspective. But, I mean, oftentimes uh, educational problems are fairly contrived. And, you know, they're somewhat contrived so that... Uh, so that they can be solved in a deterministic period of time. Whereas <laughs> most of the problems that you're going to encounter in industry, you know, they weren't designed to be solved quickly. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back to my own college experience and it was, you know, looking at a transistor design problem and yeah, you, you break it down into smaller parts, but it was usually solved for the DC conditions, plug in, find some AC performance characteristic, and then, solve the AC portion of the problem. And then that was it. It was two, maybe three different steps, I guess, or pieces. But, uh, you know, if you were on a, a big project, that would be, you know, just one of many, many pieces you'd have to keep track of and juggle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, currently at work, I'm trying to deal with documentation and getting boards out and running tests to determine potential output filters on a, um, you know, buck regulator, and I got some other little science projects going on there for other projects, and then you got legacy stuff coming up, and every every one of them is a pretty big problem that's got to be broken down, and it's, school did a good job preparing me, I think, overall, but, you know, there's only so much you can do. So, Carmen, you've been out of school for a few years now, so what's different about what you're doing now than what you did in school? What kind of problems are you coming that require this sort of decomposition and where do you start and how did you learn where to start? Um, the, the problems are a little bit more than just like a, a straightforward, like, okay, here's a documented system. Uh, you know, the, we know an answer exists and it's just a matter of grinding through these equations and it's it becomes more of a blended problem where, you know, uh, I got to hit different timetables, you know, uh, satisfying people across the globe. And it's not just, you know, sit down at my desk for an hour and put my head down and come up with a solution. It's, you know, breaking down these these much bigger problems that, you know, the the engineers who give it to me don't know if they can actually solve for some of these science projects. Um, 
we were trying to determine some temperature characteristics of a chip and you know it's we it's not like a processor where we have a, a built-in uh you know temperature diode that you just pull a register and see what it's reading so we we had to devise some pretty pretty ridiculous tests and uh you know jury rigged setup to you know try trying to talk about this here without giving too much away about the project <laughs> right we had but, to de- de- devise a pretty complicated setup to get the ac temperature characteristics of uh our ic right so in, in the absence of an equation that you could turn to a you know a proven solution you basically had to do make some assumptions about you know something that might work and start doing testing giving you some sort of empirical number yeah you could work from uh, yeah yeah i mean we we knew it was hanging off the one uh pin that we ended up using but we weren't sure how that was going to work, so we had to do various steps of characterization to, uh, you know, gradually working up to a problem that we actually had to solve. And in the meantime, we solved five or six other problems. Right. And so let me ask Adam, if in the civil world, now you're building roads where one would think that roads have been built for so long that, that most of this has been split up. Is there still, is there still a problem with problem is there still a difficulty with problem decomposition in road building? Well, there's always more and more complex problems to solve. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the problems have been solved, but the the problems in road construction tend to be more socioeconomic mm-hmm. and human factors. Um, taking the problems and and breaking them down as to how can we meet the various needs. In this given project, how do we balance the needs, which really is a very different problem from what we would do in school. Uh, but even in like uh, structural engineering, which they deal with that a, a bit less from what I can see not being a structural engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, in school, you solve a truss or a beam. In practice, you're solving a bridge. Right. Which may have hundreds of beams or trusses. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the processes apply, but it's just bigger. Uh, and in school, the, the constraints tend to make a lot more sense. You know, here's a number. And in, uh, in practice, the constraints tend to be chaotic. <laughs> yeah. Seemingly um, random at times. Absolutely. Um, at the same time, you can usually get more information. If you don't have the piece of information, you don't need to figure out how to solve for it. You can go out and measure it, or you can get somebody to answer what is this constraint actually, or you can just guess. Yes, and that that kind of um, eliminates a, a bigger point: is things are more flexible in a sense uh, when you're out in the actual world. I mean, when you're doing a test or a project at school, uh, you know the numbers given to you are the numbers given to you. You know the professor's not going to rewrite the project to make it 12 volts or 50 newtons instead of whatever he originally written it written down for you um Mm -hmm. you know he's not going to resolve it and make more work for himself in the real world everything is in flux where you know the customer gives you a spec for a project and you go ahead and try and design to it and there's a give and take if you know the customer says this should be possible but you come back and say well specs x y and z are okay but a, B, and C, would it be okay if we had 10% tolerance instead of 5? And then, you know, you can work to kind of change your constraints a little bit. Well, and you also brought up a point that the professor's typically writing. The professor's got an audience, and isn't is unless you're truly demented, is not going to give you an impossible problem. Yes. Whereas 
Whereas people in industry will give you impossible problems. And oftentimes people creating problems are those that maybe don't understand the solution space. Yes, yes. Yeah, your customer could put a set of restrictions on you, but they don't fully understand your field. They're, uh, you know, some guy who's got 100 items on his list and only three of them relate to what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. he just says, this is what I need. Uh, Make it happen. Not to mess up the conversation here, but uh, I had to mute for a second and accidentally clicked pause. Okay. So, um, yeah, some reason here I messed up the timeline. We can start over. <laughs> you're, you're telling me you messed up the timeline in Audacity. Yes, I'm saying that my Audacity and your Audacity, the timestamps are going to be off right about, right about here. Uh, uh, we should probably okay. just clap again right now. That's kind of what I was going to suggest. Okay. Well, since you did it, you get to count this time. All right. One, two, three, four. Ow. All right. Uh-huh. Sorry about that. <laughs> now, now click your heels three times and say, "There's no place like home." There's no place like home. There's, There's no, no place, place like, like home. There's, There's no, no place, place like, like home. Heineken. We should just leave all this in for crying out loud. Just confuse our guests, <laughs> our listeners. All right. Okay. So what are we talking about? Uh, Brian was, we were mentioning the changing nature of specs and, uh, you know, sometimes oh. you get impossible specs from your customer who may not know what it is you're actually doing. And you may not know it's impossible. That too. Yep. Uh, yes. Also, unfortunately, you know, times may arise that, uh, you know, your, your task is impossible for you, but maybe your competitors have an advantage you don't, and so it's not impossible for them given all the constraints. You know, they might be using a better process technology for integrated circuits or, you know, have a fancy scanning microscope that your company may not have or, you know, just more money to throw at the problem. Yeah, and managers normally don't like to hear that. No, but it, it, it exists. <laughs> they want a they want a, they want a clear deliverable schedule on their impossible machine. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. They needed it yesterday. Right. That well, and there's the other big part of the problem that uh, of problems that they don't talk about much in school is the money. When it comes down to it, yeah, there might be more than one way to solve it. What one is the cheapest? Yes. <laughs> and uh, typically, though not always, cheaper is better. Or actually a problem that I think I'm seeing more and more. A lot of the cheapest solutions you may not be able to manufacture for more than a couple of years. Where, uh, uh, and actually this kind of gets to the practice art uh, bullet point uh, where engineers have to deal with rust corrosion and deteriorating, deteriorating components. Can't say it. Thank you, Mr. Heineken. <laughs> and... I would also add uh, product manufacturing schedules where uh, an obsolescence or obsolescence, you know, the time period of that is accelerating, especially given that mobile technology is now driving a lot of high volume electronics manufacturing. So, you know, that whiz bang arm chip that you just built into your product, you want to build for the next 10 years, maybe end of life two, three years down the line. Yeah. And so was that, were those kind of design decisions difficult for you to get used to once you'd gotten into industry? Don't know that I've gotten used to it yet. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say something to that effect too. (laughs) Uh, It's, uh, it's, it's, it's more of a, uh, it's, it's, 
I don't I, I don't know how bad it it will be. I know how bad it could be. Where uh, I've seen some industries try to you know build say Android products in an industrial space, mm-hmm. and you know you really got to wonder if TI is going to support their OMAP processor or you know you know if the if you're going to have to relay out your board to do technology refreshes every three or five years, and now you've got to recertify your components or you know, report your software to the new device. And, you know, that may not sound like a big deal, but you're always hoping that you're moving on to bigger and better things, you know. Right. Not constantly redesigning the same product. Yeah. Trying trying to get money for sustaining engineering projects is a lot harder than, you know, yeah. the next thing that could reinvent the industry. Yeah, and there's this saying that old projects never go away. They never die. And uh, that's certainly true. You could you could be away from a project for ten years, and somebody's got to come tap you on the so- shoulder one day and go, "Hey, Jeff, you remember that project you worked on ten years ago?" Uh, barely. Oh, well, we can't find this part that you spec'd out. Uh, what do you think we should do? You, you've you've been drug into it, even though you didn't want to be. Yeah. Well, hey, best case, you're still around, dude. Remember what the heck you did. <laughs> Normally, it's uh, hey, the guy who did this wasn't here. He left about ten years ago. Uh, here, here's the <laughs> one half of a ripped page we have left of documentation. Go figure right. it out. And you know, I'm <laughs> describing a problem that's always existed. And I think if I'm speaking to anything, it isn't just an amplifier or um, a capacitor that goes obsolete. It's it's a processor. It's an A to D. It's it's more complex. And thus, more the the uh, retrofits are going to be, you know, there, there are no form fit function replacements. Yeah, yeah. If your if your three terminal voltage regulator goes obsolete, well, there there's probably ten more you could look at that do a good enough job to replace it. If your five hundred pin FPGA goes out, uh, that's a whole board redesign, potentially a code redesign. Yeah. Um. That that's a whole new project in and of itself. Whereas, you know, some, some chips have standardized, you know, layouts and. Right. But I don't know. I think you guys just need to be more stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To be honest, a part of the reason that say LEDs haven't permeated the uh, roadway lighting space a lot, or as, as far as one would think they should have is we're stubborn. We want to drop in replacement. Mm -hmm. It has to be, this is the exact replacement for this old technology. And yeah. you cannot make us change something. I mean, I'm not a, a road designer, but, uh, you know, introducing LEDs also has its own issues, too, in terms of increased complexity. I mean, the LED doesn't get as hot, so in the winter you can't melt the snow and ice that fall onto the traffic lights. So what happens if it becomes obscured? Now you got to work in a whole heating system. Am I even close to right there, Adam? Or? Um that was a concern. In reality, it's a, it's become a non-issue. It's not, just use less, but, less efficient LEDs that heat up more? Uh, and, and I think part of it may be that. <laughs> um, there's so much support circuitry going on, uh-huh. too, because um, you have your power supply on the same module as your, as your LEDs okay. are. It, we're not doing the power supply in the cabinet. We're doing the power supply at the, at the luminaire or at the, um, the indicator. Gotcha. Oh, well, that's why I don't design roads. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd be I'd be reinventing the wheel and it turns out the problem's already solved. 
Yeah. Right. Well, the other part of that is it's a whole lot easier to move uh, 120 volts AC uh, several hundred feet mm-hmm. than it is 5 volts DC. Yeah. I believe they had that debate about 120-ish years ago whenever they were reeling about <laughs> on the light bulbs. <laughs> That, yeah, if you want to do any, yeah. if you want to do more than a couple watts, five volt DC is going to be. Uh, oh God, those conductors are going to get. Yeah, those conductors are going to get big really quick. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the downsides of this, of course, is if as engineers we try to say, well, we're going to make our design bulletproof. We're going to make it, you know, handle all these different situations, and we're <laughs> going to make it perfect, and we're going to uh, try to spec something that will be uh, impermeable. And um, that's not the right word. Uh, it will it will be uh, it won't go out of style. It won't go out of uh, production. Uh, <laughs> we can spend a lot of money and a lot of effort trying to uh, make something perfect, and that's not that's not the right design. That's not the right method either. No. By the time you get it perfect, the design will be obsolete. <laughs> yeah. That all that testing takes a lot of time and a lot of resources and. You know, any, any students out there, you know, it's it's real easy to make your cobble together Arduino prototype work once. Uh, making it work a million times consistently every day is quite another story. Um, however many percentage are, of our audience is students. Uh, that was that was one of the biggest challenges I had to meet when I got to uh, the quote-unquote real world was, okay, I finished, and they said, well, what about all these corners? And I go, uh... Will we hit those? And they say, yeah, go back to the lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so there has to be something that, that is getting the the product out the door. I, you know, mm-hmm. as engineers, we can't we, – we, sometimes we need to be the stumbling block. We need to stop things before they go in the wrong direction. But we can't be that all the time or they're going to find somebody else to, to replace us and, and come in and do our job. Yeah, at the end of the day, a product does have to move, you know, out the door. And uh, sometimes it's willing to accept that uh, you're never going to be perfect and good enough is good enough. Right. And, uh, you know, you got to make everybody up and down the chain from management to your other design engineers to the guys on the quality floor to, you know, the janitor possibly (laughs) (laughs) that, uh, that, you know, this is, this is what needs to be done. And if we want to get something out and on time and on budget, you know, you got to move forward. Yeah. And, and what's your experience been with um, communicating with others in the organization? You know, I found I was spending a lot of time uh, because I was dealing with machine shops or the or the machine shop there in the, in the company I was working for. There was a lot of time spent with machinists just discussing what a print meant or how we we're going to do it or, or how to improve the print or do you find the same sort of thing that you have to have a lot of communication with others in the company to make things keep moving forward? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, currently in the process of laying out a new board right now. And, uh, you know, I'm, me and the layout engineer are in each other's offices two, three times a day going over the requirements for this board. And this is before a formal design review, just trying to get it in a position, uh, a state of readiness so we can do that. And Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking, is it better to route these sense lines over here? Or what if we dropped them to this layer and ran them that way? And, you know, it's it, there's a lot of communication involved. That, that that's yeah. I'm lucky enough to have him right in the same building as me. You know, when one of our customers across the, across the ocean has something go wrong, then it gets infinitely more complicated because we're on opposite time zones. And, 
you know, I'm getting to work when they're going home and sleeping and you, know, you got to make really succinct emails then. Right. And, and how do you handle the, the whole bit about uh, deciding what to do now versus what to do later? Yeah. Ask my boss which one's more important, honestly. <laughs> sometimes sometimes <laughs> I just don't know because what I feel is more important, you know, is not always what is more important. If I think a report can wait, but it turns out that a manager needs it because he's going on a, a trip in two days to several customers and has to have the presentation ready, well, that takes precedence over a little bit of testing that may be more important to me, but in the right. grand scheme of things is farther down the line. So at least a couple times a week, I'll, I'll have to check in and make sure I'm still on the right track because things can change overnight, quite literally. Yeah, I, and I, I think the... the the important point is that not everything has to be done right now. I mean, it, yeah. it sometimes seems like that. Your boss comes to you and is like, I need it now, I need it now, I need it now, and you think everything has to be done now. But there is some judgment there as to what gets done now and what gets done later. Yeah, yeah, and some of that just comes from experience, too. Uh, as you work with certain people, you know, oh, okay, well, you know, Adam always gives me these damn deadlines and then never needs them <laughs> until two weeks later, so he's going to wait two or three days and, I'll get something done for Brian, who actually does need it on Wednesday. Take that out. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, I think I've heard something similar before, too. But <laughs> Yeah. Again, I'm curious, Adam, in the road building industry, is everything like on a tight schedule, or does, does the schedule of events get kind of juggled depending on what's happening from day to day? They, you know, the, the asphalt guy's got ahead of where, you know, the, uh, the road tearing up crew got, and so... We're going to adjust today's schedule based on that. Um, well, I know around my office there's a lot of juggling and uh, a lot of always balancing priorities. Um, that's maybe a quarter of my job is balancing priorities, figuring out what <laughs> needs to be done this week to meet all of our, our obligations. Um, yeah. I think that's with any organization. So, so when you say uh, meet the or you know meet the deadlines or meet the or so what's who's deciding this? What is what is the deciding factor? Is it how loud the local you know I, town council is yelling, or is it uh, oncoming winter? Or what what decides what you know what what is the deciding factor? Winter is coming. <laughs> um, all the above. Uh, right now, the biggest one in in uh, that I'm dealing with is. Um, letting dates when when we let work affects how much it costs mm -hmm. the earlier we let the project the the less we pay for it because the contractors want to make sure they have enough work right so uh that's the the big drive right now is to get everything done early so that we can get it out the door and we can get get bids yeah um but you know, there's other priorities that come up. Who's yelling loud enough? And they may take precedence over somebody else for a day. Um, right. But that's it, it all comes down to judgment and, and knowing what the priority is and uh, being able to make a judgment. And if I push this off, what's the consequence? And the frustrating part of that, I think, is that once you've done it a few times, it doesn't seem so impossible to figure out what to do next. Mm -hmm. But these situations are very, very difficult to describe. It would be hard to take a college student or fresh grad and say, well, in this situation, you need to do ABC because there are so many, you know, little details that affect, you know, which direction you'd go. You know, and I 
I'm still learning this every day. I'm learning more about how long these things take. And if I move this, what does this do to these three things? Yeah. Yeah. It's a definitely a learning experience, mm -hmm. which, which is what we said at the beginning of the, the episode. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the other things that, that I've noticed is that engineers, uh, I, I had a question think, for Adam before we oh, move oh, on. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Sure. Um, you know, uh, we're talking about balancing priorities, and you had mentioned earlier about uh, socioeconomic impacts and stuff. Like, how, how do you guys judge? I mean, if I miss a deadline, you know, so-and-so can't make widget X on time and maybe misses a trade show, and yeah, it sucks, it's bad, I'm going to catch heat for that. But, like, if you guys have to repair a, the main bridge going into a city, you could, like, gridlock that entire city if something goes wrong. And how do you weigh the economic impact of that and... How does that impact what you do? Because that, that has a much wider effect than just, uh, you know, missing a trade show deadline. Um, yeah. Well, we, we look at a lot of things, and probably the biggest thing we try to do is be forthcoming with information and let them know what we're going to be doing as far in advance as we can practically. I mean, we may know for five years we don't want to talk to them before two because everybody forgets it over those five years. Um, and people take it a little better, but, um, yeah, we have various analyses for what the cost is to the public for different alternatives and, and we can do that. Um, sometimes though, there's just no option. So we, it comes down to judgment, um, and money. Is it worth the additional money to get in and out? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I mean, if we're adding five minutes to everybody's commute, is it worth $20 million? Yeah. On the other hand, if the bridge is going to collapse without maintenance, then. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and getting things done, that's the reality is we have very strict thresholds on a lot of that. And there's a lot of buffer space, theoretically. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not a bridge engineer. I don't know all the details of this, but we, we try to include plenty of factors of safety that will close the bridge long before we think it's possible to collapse. I would hope so. <laughs> it, it should be good till today, maybe tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> uh, in, in reality is we're looking at, well, it should be good for three years, but yeah. let's shut it down now. Yeah. Yeah. Because you it's never all know. All it takes is for one, one bridge collapse to make national news and then your whole department's out of a job. <laughs> you are talking to two people in Minnesota. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, well, that sort of brings up uh, the point I was going to make is that engineers uh, in school, you do these calculations and there's a right answer, right? It's either right or wrong. You know, if, if the answer is, you know, 1,000 newtons, then that's the answer. And maybe if you turn in an answer that says it's 998 newtons or 1,002 newtons, that's okay. You know, round off error in your calculator. But in reality, in a lot of situations – engineers don't have to be that accurate. I mean, it's good that they know how to make that calculation, but really the important thing is to be on the proper side of the equation. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, if I design it, if I design a part and the stress on that part is, you know, uh, 500 KSI, then as long as it withstands 500 KSI, I'm okay. You know, if I designed it and it withstands 501 and it never sees more than 500, I'm okay, but if I designed it and it sees 499 and it's, you know, it's exposed to 500 and it fails, then I'm in a world of hurt. 
And so that's kind of a different way of thinking I found when I got out of school in that uh, the important thing was not getting a, a proper, you know, an exact answer, but was making sure I was on the proper side of the equation. And, and the way, in a lot of cases, that meant that I would look at a problem and I would bound it. I would go, okay, my worst case scenario here is, you know, ABC, and I would design for ABC knowing that I would spend days and weeks trying to do a precise analysis. Uh, and so there's no sense in doing that if I could bound what the worst case scenario was and design for that and do so quickly enough that it made economic sense. Okay, so you got tangentially close to a point that I wish somebody had told me when I was uh, uh, when I was in undergraduate school. Um, mm-hmm. And Jeff, maybe you can speak to this more intelligently than I can. You're often tricked into believing that you're, that there are analytical solutions to real-world problems. Mm-hmm. And it's been my experience that any problem worth solving typically res- requires a fair amount of numerical analysis. Does that jive with your experience, Jeff? So if I'm doing a, a stress analysis, if I'm doing a force analysis, then the numbers work out pretty well, uh, and the forces, you know, assuming you have rigid parts, the force, you know, the force is going to work out. I can do that, uh, that analysis, and it's going to be pretty accurate. When you start doing stresses and strains within materials, now this becomes a little more difficult because you're, you're worrying about whether the material you're dealing with is truly, uh, heterogeneous. It has the same properties throughout. There may be manufacturing difficulties that cause it to be a little stronger or a little weaker in certain parts. There may be occlusions. There may be rust. There may be nicks. There may be stress risers. And now this starts getting a little more dicey. And again, this goes back to, well, I, I do two things. One, I assume the worst case scenario, what, what's the most load that could be on this part? And I designed for that. And then we have these things called safety factors where we go, Okay, I, I've designed it to be safe, but now we're going to throw a safety factor of, you know, well, if you're, if, so if you're an aeronautical engineer, you're throwing safety factors like 1.1. 1. 1. Uh, if you're a mechanical engineer, you're normally throwing safety factors like 1.5 or 2. Uh, aeronautical engineers like to point out to me that they always have to get by on much narrower safety factors since it's so expensive to sh- uh, send stuff out in space. But, you know, that's what you do because Every part's different. Every piece of material's different. And you have to make sure that it doesn't fail. Yeah. Yeah. It's oftentimes worth the, uh, you know, a little bit more of the upfront cost to ensure a safe design than to try and fix everything once it's in production. Yeah. And, and the problem again is that something that you've done can go a long time looking like it was the right, you know, it was the right decision. Uh, if you, I was just reading this past week that, uh, uh, they were doing this analysis of the uh, Fukushima uh, nuclear reactor accident, and they were saying that part of it was that there was a there was a similar plant nearby that didn't fail, and the Fukushima plant did fail, and they were tracking a possible causes the, uh, back to the fact that there was a natural seawall around that plant that was 35 meters high, and back in 1967 when they were building the plant, they intentionally lowered that wall from 35 meters to 10 meters. And I can't remember the exact reason. There was some engineering reason, but they they intentionally lowered that wall. And so from 1967 until the accident, uh, which is, uh, I think it was 2000, 
was it 2011? So yeah, that sounds right. Uh, yes, it that looked like a good decision. You know, it held up. But so for 44 years, that was a good decision. Yeah. And then one day there's a an earthquake and a tsunami, and now it's a horrible decision. Yeah. Same with the levees in New Orleans. I mean, maybe they weren't intentionally lowered, but maybe they were passed over on upgrades or something. I'm not sure of the exact details. Someone I'm sure can correct me, but you know, right. maybe one year the budget was tight and they said, well, we just had the hurricane last year and the levees held, so they're probably fine, right? Yeah. Uh, it becomes the judgment of what is, what is that design case? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are we going to see a, is it a hundred year storm? Is it a 500 year storm? Is it a thousand year storm? Right. But, but nobody wants to hear that. If, if you're the victim of that thousand year storm, mm-hmm. you know, the civil engineer coming and saying, well, we designed for a hundred year flood is, is not really reassuring when your house is gone. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. Partly why I'm glad I work on a small scale. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 when we were putting together the show notes, I was reminded in this category of, of a scene that I saw from the Big Bang Theory, uh, where, uh, it turns out that Stuart, who's the character that owns the comic book store, and, uh, Sheldon, who's one of the physicists, are arguing, I think, about the right successor to Batman when Batman dies, which Robin should be taking over. Oh, Stuart's the, uh, the comic book store owner. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, they're having this argument and about who's wrong. And, and Stuart says, I'm sorry, Sheldon. I'm afraid you couldn't be more wrong. And Sheldon says, more wrong, more wrong, more is an absolute and not subject to gradation. And Stuart says, sure it is. It's a little wrong to say a tomato is a vegetable. It's very wrong to say it's a suspension bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, these, these are the types of things that uh, you face as an engineer that, you struggle to make a decision and you say, well, I'm going to design, you know, I'm going to design this thing to handle, again, you know, 5,000 or 500 KSI. And as long as all your loads are always below 500 KSI, you're a genius. And the minute it goes to 500.1 and the part fails, you're a heel. And were you, you know, were you wrong? Well, you were slightly wrong because you guessed just slightly differently to what to what the load was going to be. But as soon as you hit that critical point, it's a failure no matter how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's often a matter of timing, too. I mean, if I, if I make a typo on one of my reference designs and call out a uh, 0.47 microhenry inductor instead of a 0.56, uh, you know, that, that's a little wrong. And then the next week, uh, it's caught in a team meeting and, you know, they point it out. Oh, whoops, sorry, no big deal. I'll go ahead and correct it. Mm-hmm. That, that that's being a little wrong if it if I, I don't even know if this works in the full thing but if you know if it goes to the product release and the customer bases their whole bomb off of it and then all of a sudden I'm like oh uh sorry that should actually read 0.47 and they say well we already bought 3,000 of these parts based off of your recommendation then I'm not slightly wrong anymore you know yeah. I'm careless I'm not double checking my work and it's, it moves into kind of a bigger owie if I want to use the technical term. Well, and another thing for those young engineers who haven't, uh, haven't entered the, the work world yet, you, you may be okay. If, if you're off by, 
you designed that machine or that part and you design it for 500 KSI and you get 501, you might be okay because there's so much uncertainty that you're rolling into those assumptions of how strong is that material? Yeah. The, the, the whole notion that, uh, you, you know, in school, you look up at, uh, the strength of material, you know, whatever the tensile strength or yield strength is, and it gives you a number as though that were the absolute number. Uh, it takes a while to learn the fact that that's an average and you may end up with something that's significantly higher or lower. And that's why people do testing before they build big structures out of these materials. Yeah. You run the, the fancy Monte Carlo analysis and see how all those tolerances could stack up and, you know, arrive at your final number. I think I think we need to point out too that all all four of us seem to be talking uh you know about these little mistakes and you know failure and communication and you know I'm not trying to turn anybody off from going out there and becoming a real engineer or anything but we're all making the assumption that you're on a a good team of people that is allowing you to fail in little ways so you can learn and become a better engineer and you know I I can say I work on a great team at work but you know I I, I might not even be doing this podcast if I was, a, you know, in a culture that, you know, hounded on you for failing, even in non-critical situations. And, you know, it, that's not conducive to becoming a good engineer then. Yeah. If if you're in a situation where you can't have, I mean, certainly I've been in a few situations where it was uncomfortable, but I don't, but I don't think I've ever been in a organization where I couldn't have a somewhat rational discussion of the technical issues. But if you're in a situation where you can't have that discussion, where you're getting yelled at or, you know, sort of beat up on, uh, because you're, you know, you're trying to do a good job and tell the truth about what, you know, what you see, it may be time to move on or find something else. You know, it's just not worth being beat up Mm -hmm. on like that. Yeah. If you're spending seven of the eight hours trying to cover your ass for the one hour of work that you're doing, <laughs> that's that's not productive at all. And you need to find yourself a new team, you know, which I'm sure is easier said than done. Trying to find a new job is three, four episodes in and of itself. Right. But you should always be on the lookout for some change and trying to get yourself into a better situation there. So, Adam, does this uh, – do you find that this uh, concentration on small details uh, – sort of affects your your viewpoint of problems? Well, and that is one thing that engineers do need to to keep in mind is all the little details. Uh, and really, the devil is in the details is very true for much of engineering. Um, you have to write specifications accurately and detail your methods, um, detail your testing, detail all the requirements you have or place upon uh, the next person down the line that you're handing this work off to. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make sure that everything is being met or at least being met to the level it needs to be. Right. Depending, understanding the factors of safety that you have to include. That's kind of a, uh, a not fun part of the job, isn't it? I mean, at least for me, it was always, I'm, I'm sitting there with a, a manual full of, let me say I was designing a pneumatic system. And so I'm going there through catalog page after catalog page of pneumatic fittings and going, okay, I, w- I need to call out to make sure that is it, you know, is it a plastic fitting? Is it a brass fitting? Is it a steel fitting? Is it aluminum fitting? Uh, sometimes you're running oxygen. You had to make sure that you didn't have a, you know, no, no oil. There's no lubrication in the pneumatic system. Uh, you're reading through all the specs. I mean, it, this is the part of the job that is not very fun. And I guess the, 
spending hours and hours working through a calculus problem is useful because it gives you that uh, that perseverance. But you know, this this concentrating on the details is, makes you kind of you know makes makes Jack a dull boy, doesn't it? <laughs> and want to murder people. Uh, <laughs> that, that that sometimes, but you know, then you just take it out on busted parts, hit them with hit them with a hammer, make sure they can't come back to bite you. I know for me that when I need to work on something like that, I need to close myself in a, a close myself off and focus on that and get rid of all distractions because otherwise I'm going to find some other thing I need to do that big picture doesn't require that that deep concentration but a little more fun yeah. per se and I'll work on that if I can right yeah right so uh what about you Brian Are, do you end up spending lots of time doing these these little details um, it depends if it's hardware or software. If it's software, it's all little details. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's always the micro, never the macro. Whereas, yeah. uh, talking about a macro controller versus a micro yes, controller. I, I love those macro controllers. <laughs> um, what I would say in current, you may correct me on this. I make more macro changes or you may agree with me on this. I should say I make more macro changes when it comes to har- uh, hardware and layout because you know sometimes you'll go down a path you're in space limited design and you won't know that you can't get everything to fit until you try to get everything to fit um and once it doesn't fit it's never a small change it's usually a pretty large change yeah yeah i agree um i'll agree more from past experience than my my current job because you know i'm not the one designing the laptops where uh you know, my, my our parts are going into, I'm the one designing the eval board to make the parts look as good as they can. So if I need to add another quarter inch to our PCB to make a, uh, you know, a trace look prettier and add a little bit more copper for thermal heat sinking, uh, it's usually not a big deal because we're doing such a limited quantity of boards overall that the additional cost isn't a big deal. But I do, I do know what you're saying and I agree overall. And there is an art to being able to get rid of some of the need to pay attention to the details. Yeah. Yeah. As you get experience, you know, not to use certain connectors because they never work out right or, you know, what have you. You can see farther down the line. And you can learn areas where you can be a little bit conservative and not have to worry about all the, some of these other effects. Because you know, oh, yeah, I've got plenty. Yeah. Yeah. I know one of the small little changes, uh, you know, that you could easily snowball into having a big effect is, is picking the right inductor for your uh, switching regulator. And, you know, even in just a, a limited application like what I do in computing products, uh, it, it's it's a very different story. It works well on my eval board. It doesn't always work well when you stick it in the latest, you know, MacBook Air or other super thin laptop from any number of manufacturers. Uh you know, the ambient temperature inside that little space is a lot higher than, you know, my board sitting open air on my bench. And it, it choose, you know, plays into what, what size inductor you get in terms of, you know, length, width, and height, but also like the metal alloys that make it up and how it behaves at the higher temperatures. And, you know, oh, maybe you like this alloy better, but you can't get that in the right size. So you take a hit in other specs and you have to compensate for that elsewhere in your design. And it, it very easily becomes a nice circular uh, problem that's hard to jump out of if you think about it for too long. 
And adamantium is very expensive. Yes, those <laughs> adamantium inductors. But they are self-healing, though, which is nice. <laughs> yep. Uh, trying to find a customer to justify that cost to, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you said it earlier, Carmen, about the, you know, the details depending on what the situation is, too. You know, so if you design something early in the process, it's, you know, not nearly as expensive as if you have it in the final product and you're manufacturing millions of these boards, you know, a year uh, type thing. I, the other one I remembered was I mentioned in the last episode uh, something about Chuck Yeager. And it happened. It reminded me that in his book, there was a story about um I think it was the F-86. It was either the F-86 or the F-100 jet that there was a design where the the engineer had intentionally put the bolt upside down so it got installed from, you know, underneath on the bottom and got them the nut on the other side. And it was done so it wouldn't interfere with a, uh, a control cable. And the guy on the assembly line who came across this looked at that and said, Oh, well, this is obviously a mistake. And so he put the, the bolt in from the top, as would make sense as he was sitting there. All the other bolts came in from the top. Why wouldn't this one too? Uh, and they lost several pilots because when they would be flying and try to make the, the right, I think they were flying upside down and tried to make the right corrective, uh, uh, maneuver, then they caught the control cable and it wouldn't respond and, and the jet wouldn't go the direction they were supposed to and, and the pilots were lost. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the point is that these, these small details, uh, you know, tr you know, you, you put this small detail into a design and this one small detail can, uh, have a catastrophic effect on, on the entire thing. And that's, yeah. uh, that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not, that's not really reassuring, but that's kind of the life of the engineer. In a lot of cases, you have to, you have to deal with these small details and figure out, how do you make sure that there there isn't a failure? How do you make sure that the bolt always gets installed correctly? Yeah, and, and that's one of those things where I mean, that's can you can, at that point? You know, I'm sure he had his design reasons for putting the bolt in upside down, but can you can you really fault the guy on the manufacturing floor if the documentation isn't clear enough? And you know, there's a thousand bolts, and this is the thousand and first one, and the other thousand have all been installed one way, and this one has to go another way. Um, yeah, and I, I, at least for me, doing machine design, that was one of the things I learned early on is you keep everything as simple as possible. So yes. if you're using, if you're using quarter 20 bolts, uh, everywhere else, you don't start using, you know, three eighths here and three sixteenths there and, mm -hmm. and trying to optimize the Changing size of the bolts. sizes. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah. If, 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 if you're, if you're drilling holes and they're on one inch, you know, spacing, you don't suddenly throw in a three quarter spacing in the middle of the pattern because that'll, you know, you just, everything you do, you try to make it as simple and yeah. straightforward and easily understandable as you can. Not because it's always optimal as far as the stresses and strains and loads, but because you know that people are involved. And as long mm -hmm. as people are involved, uh, you gotta, you've gotta make it simple so they can't make accidental mistakes. Is this why my IKEA furniture is really easy to assemble, but it falls apart whenever I move it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's maybe yeah, maybe that, the assembly part. I don't know why it falls apart when you move it. Yeah, I'm thinking the uh, falls apart is because they're on the wrong side of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> that may be it. Uh, yeah, that that kind of talks. Uh, what you're saying there, Jeff, is um, you know playing in the human aspects of things is is knowing that. You know, some guy who's 
you know, may or may not be making good money working on the assembly line. It's going to have to put all your contraption together and he's going to be thinking a certain way. And, you know, if, if you know how he's going to respond, then you can adjust accordingly because the, the people building it are part of the design in a way, even though, you know, they're not there at the end when it's installed. Yeah. But, but it's not like anywhere in school, they teach you about how to go approach the guy on the assembly line and find out what he's really thinking or to uh, no. uh, to have have a good conversation with him, have a little chat to dis, you know decide what's really on his mind or what interests him or uh, or her, and uh, mm-hmm. so those are things that you have to learn on the job. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, I've I've learned that too in uh, making presentations. Uh, you know, if you're looking at the transient response, um, it's, it's it's way easier to set your cursors, uh, you know, at the at the window of the spec. You know, if you're allowed. 300 millivolts of overshoot or whatever it is, you know, placing your, your current at the start of the waveform and then at the second one up 300 millivolts. And then, you know, that way when an FAE is given a presentation or a customer's quickly clicking through trying to evaluate parts for his, uh, his design, he can look through and see, oh, here's the spec I'm designing to 300 millivolts. This falls right in the middle of that spec at 150. This has more than enough margin because you know, who cares if it's less overshoot? That just means it stays in regulation better. But I also have 150 millivolts to play with if I want to change something in his design. Um, whereas if you put your cursors at the DC regulation point and then, you know, at the top of the overshoot that you're showing, they, it's, even though it's a simple multiplication to figure out what the spec should be and where you're at or a simple subtraction, it's the initial instinct, if there's not a lot of time, is, oh, that's right at the spec. Uh, that doesn't look as good. Yeah. And it's, it's just a so simple flick of the wrist to adjust the cursors. But, you know, up, up until I had to answer a handful of emails from people using my presentation I put together to show to customers, and they say, hey, it looks like we don't have a lot of spec um, or margin on this spec, you know, right. what gives? And then you have to explain it, and you realize, oh, that was that was lack of foresight there. Right. Yeah, on a lot of machine drawings, I, if I know that that the drawings are we're only making one or two units, you know, it's not like this is going into production. It, I will abandon ANSI standards, which you know all the CAD packages want you to do, and so you end up with this this mishmash of symbols that you know reference this and relative to that and square to this. And I, mm-hmm. I just you know I abandon all that and I go drill and <laughs> drill and tap quarter twenty hole. You know, the guy in the machine yeah. shop knows how to drill and tap a quarter twenty hole. That's all I want, and. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I quickly give up on on trying to impress them with my ability to follow ANSI standards because most engineers yeah, sure they don't care. Well, most either. engineers don't understand them, and I, mm-hmm. and most machinists don't understand them either. So, yeah, making their lives easier too. <laughs> right, right. Now, now one of the problems with this this concentration, this focus on detail, though, is that uh, you know engineers can be we become we become uh skeptical that's the word i'm thinking of and and so we don't we start not to trust anything you know we each problem is a little different so you know people go well that we we did that problem before and we go well this one's a little different uh, so we won't give a quick you know the well so can we do this jeff well i don't know I'll, i need to examine the problem it's just like the other one no i say no problem is just like the other one uh or they go you know can we use that part? And I'd go, well, if the parts to spec, we can. And they go, what do you mean? Well, every part's different. So I can't tell you, it, you know, hasn't, hasn't met testing. Uh, you know, it, they'll go, well, here's, here's the test data. 
And I'll go, did you calibrate the test instruments? And they go, what do you mean? Well, I don't know if the test. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, when you're, when you're focused on these small details, the tendency is to become very skeptic, skeptical of the information you're given and people can see you, you become quote, not a team player if you do too much of that. And so there's a, there's a balance to, uh, being skeptical enough to do your job well, but not being so skeptical that, uh, you know, every, that you avoid everybody thinking that you're trying to, uh, obstruct progress in the project. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. How how you bring about, you know, you should never trust news that seems too good to be true because a lot of times it is. But, um, yeah, how you go about getting people to do more work to further prove that out, uh, you know, is something you have to learn on the job too. Yeah, and, and for those that are that are not engineers, you know, something somebody comes in and goes, well, we can, you know, we, we can do that type of control. You know, you've got a machine that has to chop, you know, do a, a fast chopping job and, uh, and I'm thinking of this because I worked at a, a company once that made, uh, blood glucose strips. And so they had these plastic strips and you had to chop them into, into, you know, the final strips out of the, the final web. And, you know, somebody would come in and say, well, we can do this faster. And, and management would get very excited because they'd start seeing the money that could be made if you could do it faster. And, you know, these, these claims that people make, I, you know, again, I'm skeptical. Well, show me, you know, let's put it on a machine. Let's, let's slowly ramp it up to speed. Let's see, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Let's see it, do it. And, and then I'm a believer. Uh, but, but by the same token, you can get a reputation of being a, a, uh, uh, a stick in the mud, so to speak. If you're always saying, I don't believe it or I don't trust it or I won't endorse it. Uh, you got to be helpful, even if, if even if you're skeptical. Even if you're skeptical, you still have to be helpful in trying to get the project move forward. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't mean you know. It, just the fact that you get the right answer is more important than who solves it. Sometimes, uh, not saying you should put yourself in a position where you're not getting promotions or you know the accolades you deserve, but maybe somehow leading. So another engineer to the solution you know is right is better than jumping up at the meeting and slapping your hand down on the table and saying, you know, this is the problem. This is where we have to look. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe asking an engineer to run one or two tests in this area and then all of a sudden he sees the problem too without you having to say it. Uh, you know, so, something like that could work yeah. too. So one of the other things that really surprised me when I got out into industry was – the extent to which I was asked to be a, what would be the right word, a fortune teller, uh, to see the future. And I would get questions like, you know, well, how long will, how long will this project take for a project that I'd never <laughs> done before? Or will this, will this, you know, will this control system work? I, I don't know. Uh, do, do, do you guys run into that? Is, are you asked quite often? Are you asked at all? I'll on a daily basis, <laughs> almost. Maybe not daily, but a lot. Um, comes into uh, to reference designs, and you know, I, I get it. Marketing, marketing, and the the field guys have to get a customer excited, so they want to sample the silicon. But at the same time, I can't give you the end application schematic reference design. I have to throw preliminary on there because 
until the ship comes back and I can evaluate it, you know, I, I can't say that this is exactly the number of caps you need on the output or this is the exact compensation resistor you should throw in because, yeah, we may have used a lot of these circuit blocks before, but things changed. Maybe the designer had to tweak a small parameter in there and, you know, that cascades down the line and, you know, I, I can't give you anything definite until I get silicon back. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes trying to make the FAE see that is easier said than done. And, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd rather not do the reference design twice. If I could just give it to you once, that would be great. But I'm not going to sign my name to this saying it's it's complete when, uh, you know, I haven't even looked at the actual part. Right. But that being said, a lot of times, you know, if you, you have a good spec ahead of time and, uh, you know, you have a, a chip that has a similar functionality um you know maybe the same control system inside of it or the same current rating for the internal fets or what have you you can you can get pretty close such that you know okay uh then you always give yourself a little bit of buffer to you know you say you need 16 caps and uh an inductor this size give or take uh yeah, you, you're usually pretty close then in the end And, and, and you do that of course to make sure you're on the proper side of the equation (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, if the customer's fine with 16 caps and then you come in later and say, oh, you know, I saved you bomb bomb cost and board space, you only need 14, well, then everybody wins. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes the customer likes to have more safety margin too and, you know, maybe it comes in at 16 like you predicted. Well, they may use 18 then just to make sure that when they're in production they don't have a problem. Yeah. A recurring theme that we've mentioned a couple times here is factor of safety is more than just a number. It's it's really important to to understand factor of safety and and margins and um, mm-hmm. I think factor of safety is probably the the biggest thing to make an engineer's job easier. Yes. Uh, how about for your line of work, Adam? I, I recommend making commuters' life easier. So, you know. <laughs> We, we think we should only need two lanes, but we're going to build four just in case. <laughs> that, would, that would make my life easier. I'd be a very happy taxpayer. Uh, well, yeah, but you're also a taxpayer there, right, Carmen? Do mm-hmm. um, you want to pay for eight or four? Can, can I pick the roads? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they're on the side of the city I drive on, sure. If it's on the other side, let those people pay for them. I'll just pay for this, the kind you think, the number of lanes you think you need. <laughs> uh <laughs> they should be solar as well. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Future proof, right? To answer the the, the real question here, uh, yeah, factor safety is really important, and and part of that is we're expected to forecast out twenty to forty years. It, it's really hard to forecast out that far, so mm-hmm. you make sure you've got plenty of factor of safety. Yeah, and that sort of involves one of the other factors that engineers have to worry about that isn't, you know, isn't in the textbooks. And that is uh, follow-up costs. You know, and in, in the case of the roads, I'm thinking maintenance cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may have the budget to build it, you know, this year or next year, or, you know, if, if it's a five-year project, it takes five years, but somebody is still going to be paying to, uh, to clear snow off that road and to, you know, uh, re-asphalt that road and to put up signage on that road mm-hmm. 40 years uh, from now. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, try to design the smallest you can get away with, but to still have enough to, to meet your requirements. Right. And it's that balancing act of what is enough. 
Yeah. And, and I think we talked about in the, in the episode called, uh, uh, longevity. Th- there is a balancing act. You can design something to be, to last for a long time, but nobody wants to pay for that now. Mm-hmm. Even if it's cheaper. Long yeah. run. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, that brings us to a good, uh, tie up point for all of this is what, what do engineers do? And that is we're, we're tightrope walkers. <laughs> you know, we're, we're walking that very fine line between, you know, staying on budget, but still adding safety margin, you know, watching the big picture and moving product out the door while also keeping track of those little details. Yeah. At the same time, communicating to everyone around you that you know what you're doing and this is what needs to be done. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that it's a fun career, that it's an exciting uh, occupation. It's just it, yeah. it is not necessarily directly tied to what we learned in school. Mm-hmm. Go join the circus. Be a tightrope walker. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I took away from this. <laughs> all right. Wait, does that mean you think we should uh, we should call this an episode? Uh, I, I mean, we're at an hour and a half here. Our, our audience has has other things to do. They don't need to listen to us, uh, you know, keep whining on all day. Yeah, you think they have limited patience? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, and I don't know about you guys, but my beer glass is empty. So this is yeah, this is our safety margin. <laughs> How much patience do ours does our audience have? Right. Uh, we should we should run a corners case every week. We do another five minutes longer until we get complaints. <laughs> Just fill it up any way we can. But then always throwing a nugget is something useful at the end, so they never know if they can cut the podcast off. <laughs> I think you have a career in marketing. <laughs> Don't say that. That's insulting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's call this a uh, an episode, and uh, we'll come back in a couple of weeks with a uh, another episode. We've got a couple of guests lined up for at least our next two or three uh, recording sessions. So. Uh, I hope everyone will enjoy those, and uh, we'll get together next time on the Engineering Commons. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you guys later. Great talk to you. Bye now. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.